last Monday evening was a kind of where were you moment for many thousands, I would guess, of people around the country. Last Monday evening was the occasion of a football game, football game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. It was on Monday night football. It was being watched by likely tens of millions of people around the world. And at that game, someone nearly died. Uh, safety for the Buffalo Bills was engaged in a, in a collision where a wide receiver crashed into his chest. And the player, the DeMar Hamlin is his name, got up from his feet and stood and then literally fell straight backward. I mean, just straight backward and hit his head on the ground where you knew that something was wrong. He did not catch himself at all. And what was interesting was that everyone, the Bengals players, the opposing team who they had been fighting a fierce battle, this game had incredible significance uh, to the National Football League, they began pointing for help. They knew something was deeply wrong. And the Bills players immediately were concerned and the trainers came running out. And then the camera kind of cut away. But what happened is they started showing some of the Bills players. And there were Bills players crying on the field, weeping. And thank you, Ben. The reason they were weeping was what the cameras weren't showing was that the trainers were performing CPR on a 24-year-old healthy athlete, one of the most physically fit people who live on planet Earth. DeMar Hamlin had gone into cardiac arrest. His heart had stopped beating normally. He needed to be intubated. And it became a life-or-death battle for, I think they performed CPR on him on the field for 20 minutes. They had to restart his heart. They had to restart his heart again later at the hospital. He continued to be... Uh, unconscious and sedated as he fought for life. And now this week he has begun to recover. He's still, I understand, in the hospital, but it appears that he is no longer in the same critical condition. Now I start here because what was so um, uh, eye-opening but so healthy was how quickly his fellow players, not just those on his team but those on the other team, began reacting to this deeply heated rivalry between these teams with significant effect, immediately they recognized it's not about anymore the Bills versus the Bengals. Those aren't the teams. What's going on right now is the battle between life and death. And as human beings, we're going to stand on the side of life. The NFL ultimately canceled the football game. It won't be replayed. It won't be rescheduled. They'll figure it out. What happened was on that side, it didn't matter who the specific teams were anymore. It mattered the common humanity that we shared with DeMar Hamlin. I thought of this because it was actually a refreshing break from so much of what dominates our life as humans and as Americans. We have seen, and I have commented before, on the kind of polarization of our American society around politics, around the idea that there really are two teams. There's the Republican team and there's the Democrat team. And those teams are not just competing, they're in warfare. 
And therefore, if one side wins, we die. And if the other side wins, we live. And so it becomes this kind of this pitched battle that is more than just politics. It becomes a kind of life and death struggle in which we cannot give an inch. We've commented before, the problem with this kind of teams, this battle, this warfare mentality, is that in warfare there is no simply give or take. It is your side or the other side. And what happens is we can lose our integrity as followers of Christ by not speaking up about the wrong that's happening on our side. Well, if I speak out against that, then the other side wins, and I can't give an inch to the enemy. No, it's not ultimately about whose team we are on. It's ultimately about whether we're on his team. That's ultimately the real question, not whether a kingdom of a political party is being advanced, but whether the kingdom of God is being advanced. It's a good reminder for us to be relentlessly people of integrity, willing to call right right and wrong wrong, no matter where it arises and no matter which team, if you will, it comes up on. We have, as human beings, have a deep, deep, connection, a deep, deep loyalty to partisanship, and I don't mean just politics, to a party spirit that compares and that says, are you on my side or are you on someone else's side? Shortly after, not many years after Abraham Lincoln died, there was a book that was written on him, and there was a conversation that was recounted in that book that is a well-known one, but this is apparently its earliest source, a clergyman was happening to say uh, to him in the Civil War that he said, I hope that, that, that the Lord is on our side in this battle. I hope that the Lord is on our side in this battle. And this is how Abraham Lincoln apparently responded. He said, I am not at all concerned about that, for I know that the Lord is always on the side of the right, but it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side. You see the difference? Is God on my side? No, that's not the question because it's not about my team or your team. What's the question? Am I on God's side? That's the relevant question. And here, as we come to Mark chapter 9, we are reminded of this in a wonderful, refreshing passage that Jesus is going to teach his disciples. They are coming to him in a kind of party spirit, a spirit of partisanship, a, a spirit of, are you on my side? And Jesus needs to flip that around so that they are no longer asking, are you on my side? But he needs to get them to the understanding, to the proper question, which is, Am I on his side? And he does it in a way that is, should be very convicting to the party spirit that can so naturally invade our lives, even in a Christian sense, but also with the real wisdom and discernment not to take that principle beyond biblical boundaries. The title of the message this morning is, Whose Side Are You On? Whose Side are you on? And may ultimately where we end this message today, may we be convinced that we are on the side of Christ in whatever ways that that requires. First of all, let's start with what I'm going to call a recollection of the disciples. 
a recollection that comes out of the disciples. Now, where are we here in the book of Mark? We took last week off from our study of Mark, but from the week before, we remember that Jesus is in Galilee, but he is teaching his disciples privately. He's not out doing his public miracles as he did before. This is apparently a quick tour through Galilee. He doesn't want anyone to know it. And he is teaching his disciples about the very nature and essence of his ministry, of his work on earth, and what their character is to be. He has told them that he is going to suffer, that he is going to be rejected, and that he is going to be killed. But after that, he's going to rise the third day. His disciples don't know what that means, and they're afraid to ask him. Next, he tells them when he comes to Capernaum, he asks them, you were arguing about something in the way, weren't you? We were going along the way, and you were arguing. What were you arguing about? And they say, embarrassed to him, ashamed. They know that they're not doing right in this. They were arguing about who would be the greatest. Well, Jesus has talked about his kingdom coming. So who's going to be kind of his left hand and who's going to be his right hand? Who are going to be the most prominent ones in his kingdom? And notice what he says. He calls the 12 in verse 35. He says, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, again, what, we, what I believe he's saying here is, do you want to have a position of promise? Then go to the back of the line. That's how do you get greatness in God's kingdom? You're last. You put everyone else's needs beyond your own, above your own. But not only are you last of all, you're servant of all. So it's not just like you're going to the back of the line saying, oh, woe is me, I guess I'll just sit back here and not worry about myself at all. You are going to the back of the line so that you can affirmatively serve other people. And we talked about this two weeks ago. This is the key not only to greatness in God's kingdom, but in our relationships practically day by day. If you want to have a good marriage, then commit to making yourself last of all and servant of all. A husband and wife that make themselves intentionally last of all and servant of all will know what true joy in marriage is when they pursue the needs, meeting the needs of their spouse. And on and on we could go in the body of Christ as Christians together at Straight Gate Church. The way that we must live toward one another, true greatness in our body, is not the prominence of your position, not how much you are recognized and respected, what title you have. The greatness in this body are those who are willing to put themselves last so that they can serve the needs of those who are around them. This is just a revolutionary idea. Jesus is flipping human society, our American mentality, on its head. Be last of all. Be servant of all. And then to illustrate it, he takes a child, a young child, and puts them right in their middle. And and notice what he says. Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. He is elevating the childlike humility and character and saying to his disciples, you receive people as if you're receiving me. Not for what they will give you. Not so for what they will confer in in reputation and benefit and prestige to you. You accept them for who they are, serve them for who they are, and you will be receiving 
me. Now, at this point, we're now caught up to verse 38. Will you look with me in your Bibles if you have them in whatever form you have them? Mark chapter 9, and John answered him. That, in other words, John is responding to what he's just heard. Receive these little children or little children-like ones. And John has a thought come to his mind. You know what it reads to me like it's a convicted thought? Have you ever heard a message and there's this convicted thought that starts forming in your mind and say, oh, Lord, are you talking to me right now? God, is that, is that situation the one that you're really addressing in my life right now? Oh, I think that's where John was. Because notice what he asks. He said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. Now, what could have stirred this in John's mind? Well, Jesus is talking about receiving people and and serving people, and John says, ooh, I remember a time we didn't really receive someone very well. This guy, Jesus, was casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of our group. And and so we told him to stop. We forbade him. Now, what's going on here? Well, notice there's an unusual case. The unusual case is that there was a man who was casting out demons just like Jesus did. He actually was exercising divine authority over those who were demonically oppressed. And not only that, he was doing it in Christ's name. And you say, what does this mean? Oftentimes we trivialize Christ's name by just thinking it's just, oh, in in Jesus' name, amen. That's not what's going on here. When he says he was casting out devils in Jesus' name, he was invoking Jesus' name as the authority that would require the demon to yield. He was standing, if you will, in Jesus' shoes. He was holding up Jesus' flag, his banner. This was a big deal. In the name of Jesus, he was invoking his divine power. And the demon apparently was departing. He was accepting the authority of Jesus being proclaimed through this man's name. But the unique case is that he wasn't following Jesus in the sense that he wasn't part of his small group. He wasn't part of the disciple band. A unique thing. You remember in Mark chapter 3, perhaps, that Jesus ordained his apostles, his 12 disciples, and gave them power to cast out devils. And they might have thought, well, Jesus gave us the authority to do that, but who does this guy think he is? So they condemned him. They refused him. They rebuked him. They forbade him. This is, can't you just see, you are making an unauthorized use of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Like they're bringing a trademark action against him or something like that. You're not authorized to do this. And so therefore, stop using Jesus' name to do what you're doing. Can't you just see their chests puff out a little bit and stand up like they're the the Jesus police and say, come on now, you have not, we need to see your credentials here. If you saw that picture, you'd see what has passed for kind of the Christian police across many ages. 
and across many generations. That kind of pride and officiousness, that kind of, of I'm going to take it on myself to pronounce what I see as being a problem. Well, what really were they concerned about? What was going on here? Well, we don't know when exactly this happened, but there may be a connection. Where were we earlier in this chapter when it came to casting out demons? Jesus comes down from the mountainside. And what does he find when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration? Who had been trying to cast out demons? His disciples, nine of them, the three that didn't go up with them. How were they doing in that? Failing. Failing. Jesus told them that it was their faithlessness that was the problem. It was their faithlessness. Now, this is speculation, so we can't necessarily pin it conclusively on the disciples. But is it possible that those disciples still stinging from their own failure, stinging from their own defeat in this way, saw someone actually successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name who wasn't actually on their, in their group, on their team, so to speak, and said, whoa, 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 that there was something maybe more than just concern for Jesus' name that was going on? If so, it would be very human. We all know it. We all know what that comparison spirit is when I fail at something. That's bad enough, but do you know what makes it worse? When someone else succeeds at doing the same thing. It makes it worse when I get a grade in a class that I'm not, and that I'm not happy about, but it doesn't it often make it even worse when my friend makes the grade that I wanted? When someone at work gets the promotion that I wanted, it stings even more than just when I don't get it myself. What is that? It is our pride. It is our comparison spirit that not only wants my own advancement, but wants to make sure that others don't get beyond me. In other words, all of this is tying together to Jesus' broader point that if you're going to be great in my kingdom, in my service, in my ministry, it's going to come through humility. It's going to become through thinking very little of yourself and very much of others. It's going to come from making yourself last of all and servant of all. Friends, beware a comparison spirit. Beware the temptation, even in your Christian ministry, to look around at what others are doing and see how it compares to you. You remember when Jesus was, was, was speaking to Peter at the end of the book of John. Peter, Jesus tells Peter that he is going to be put to death for his sake. And Peter kind of nudges Jesus and says, well, what about John? What about him? What's his fate going to be? And Jesus gives him a very gentle rebuke. He says, what is that to you? Follow me. I love that. You have a big, are you at a big church or a small church? What's that to you? Follow me. Is the pastor down the street more successful, more popular? What's that to you? Follow me. Do people focus more on someone else's realm of service in Straight Gate Church than yours? What's that to you? Follow me. This is Jesus' mentality of humility and of service. It says, don't look around and compare. Follow me with the, the sphere that I've given you and leave the rest to me. And here these disciples could very well be slipping into this kind of 
envy, this kind of comparison spirit that looks at someone else's success and holds it up against their own. But this recollection of these disciples is then followed by what we have to recognize as a rebuke. A rebuke from Christ. That's our second point. Will you notice here how Jesus responds? But Jesus says, forbid him not. In other words, you did wrong. Don't, don't try to stop him from performing miracles in my name. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Now, what is, going, what is he saying here? We have to understand what he's saying because there are two cliffs here that we can fall over. There's a cliff on either side of the right path. There's one cliff, which is what the disciples did. Are you on our team? Are you in our group? If not, well, then cut it out. We're going to step in here. There's another cliff, too, we're going to see. And it's the cliff that so much of our modern Christian church has fallen into. A kind of ecumenism, an ecumenical spirit, a spirit that says truth really doesn't matter. Are are you opposed to Jesus? Oh, you're not opposed? Good. Well, then we're all on the same team. We're all on the same side. Let's just, can't we just all get along and not worry about these, these things like truth dividing us? Jesus is not saying that, even while he's rebuking his disciples for having a proud and ultimately a party, partisan spirit. So what's he saying? Let's try to understand. Let's try to unpack what Jesus is saying so we don't fall off either cliff in understanding this. Notice what he says. Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. That word lightly there, it just means quickly. The idea, if he were saying it in in English, in in an idiom, in in a way that we'd understand, he would say this, you can't perform a miracle in my name, under my flag, with my authority, and in the same breath, that's what he's saying, in the same breath, speak against me. Understand what, what, what what the logic that he's saying there is? You can't hold up my name and rely on it and trust on it. That's what this man, trust in the power of my name to have authority over the devil. And then turn around and in the same breath say, and I oppose that name. I'm against that name. I speak evil of that name. He said it doesn't make any sense. It would be like, for, for those of us, those people in our society who are very connected with a company or a sporting team. I, I got a, a Christmas card uh, from a dear friend, and his son is working in advertising and marketing, and, and, and his son is connected. His account is the State Farm account. Jake with State Farm, one of the most successful marketing campaigns probably in the last, I don't know how many decades of American. Jake from State Farm appears with all these quarterbacks. It would be like Jake from State Farm you know, identifying with his red shirt in State Farm and and then getting up publicly and saying, yeah, don't get by from State Farm after he's profited from them, after he's won with State Farm. This doesn't make any sense. He's the State Farm guy. And Jesus is saying the same thing. If he's identifying with me, if he's relying and trusting on me, exercising my authority, he's not against me. He's not speaking evil of me. That's his logic. 
And then notice then what the, how that continues. For he that is not against us is on our part. So he's saying, if he's not against me, if he's not speaking evil of me, if he's not opposing me, then what? He's on our side. He is on, more specifically, my side. Now, notice three things that we need to take from what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. The first thing is this. Jesus is concerned about one's relationship to him, not just one's relationship to his followers. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about how the disciples were viewing it. Hey, guy. Hey, buddy. You're not with our group, so stop. Jesus steps in and says, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I'm not concerned about whether he's with your group. I'm concerned about whether he's with who? Me. I'm concerned about his relationship to me, not merely to your little group, to your little team. And ultimately, this is where we need to see Jesus' priority here, his heart. What is his relationship not to us? What's this person's relationship to him? It's like Abraham Lincoln said. I'm not ultimately concerned about who is on our side. I'm concerned about we, whether we are on his side. And ultimately, Jesus said of this man, if he's doing miracles in my name, he cannot speak ill of me. He cannot speak evil. He is not opposed to me. And therefore, he is on my side. You know, this kind of, of approach, this kind of openness is not just here in Scripture. If you were to look in Numbers chapter 11, you can turn there if you like, or you can just make a little cross-reference note in your notes or your Bible. There's a wonderful similar example that we have there. In, in Numbers chapter 11... God is taking of his spirit and distributing it among 70 elders, 70 leaders in the, among the people of Israel. And he is doing this to take a burden, if you will, off Moses, off the great leader of God. And so these people assemble at the tabernacle and God gives of his spirit to them and they begin prophesying. And Joshua comes running up to Moses and he says, whoa, 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 Moses, hold on. There are two people in the camp and they started prophesying too. What are we going to do? Now here's what... Here's what Moses says. Are you envious for my sake? Do you think I'm feeling a little bit jealous or displaced that there are two people? By the way, those two people were on the list. We, had, we read in Numbers 11. They just didn't come to the tabernacle. God gave them of his spirit even out in the camp. And Moses says, are you, think, are you envious for my sake? And listen to what he says. He says, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That's what I want. It's not about me. It's not about my team. It's not about whether it's in my interest. It's whether it's in God's interest. Joshua, in fact, even told him, forbid them. Go tell them to stop. And no. And now in the same way, Jesus is responding to this example of someone exercising God's authority in Jesus' name, but who are not part of the small disciple group. And he says, don't forbid them. It's about whether what his relationship to me is. Notice the second thing we should take from this. This man on the outside of their group, 
His relationship to Jesus was evidenced by his words. That's what Jesus is focusing on here. He's saying, if he's doing miracles in my name, he can't speak evil of me. He's got to speak well of me. He is speaking on my side. His testimony is to my authority. His testimony is to my reality. He is speaking as one of us. He is not against us. He is for us. Now, this is also connecting into an important spiritual idea. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says. He says, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. What is he saying there? He's not, Paul does not intend to say that no one can get up and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Oh, absolutely, that must have been by the Holy Spirit. There, there are going to be counterfeits of all kinds. But what he is saying is there is a reality. There is a reality of one's embrace of Jesus Christ as verified by his words that is of divine origin, that is by the Spirit of God. No one can truly embrace Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very important for us to make sure we settle into and understand. Because what Jesus is not saying here is that anyone who has nice things to say about Jesus is on our side. Because there are plenty of people in our culture today who will say nice things about Jesus. He was a good teacher. I'm not against Jesus. I'm not opposed to him. I'm on his side. I love the things that he came to say. Here's the question. Are they opposed to the real Jesus? That's the question. Are they opposed to the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended up into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. From thence he shall come to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. I'm quoting from the Apostles' Creed. I'm saying this. Do they accept the real Jesus? Do they embrace the real Jesus? That is the question. Jesus, again, is not encouraging us. Oh, do they say they're not against the Jesus that they have constructed? Well, then they're on your side. No. The question is, what do they say about who Jesus is? Is he the real Jesus? In fact, we see this in the book of 2 John, just a very short little epistle, a short letter. John is warning his pe the people who read this about the way they deal with false doctrine and false teachers who are working their way into the church. He calls it the doctrine of Christ that Jesus has come in the flesh. And he said, if anyone comes and does not bring that doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, he said, you do not even invite them into your house. You do not wish them Godspeed. You don't say God bless you as you go out because they are sending people to hell. And so we have to understand when Jesus says whoever is not against us is on our side, he is not saying, oh, just look whether they have warm fuzzies toward Jesus. No. He's asking you what Jesus what is their relationship by their words to me and to how I am presented? You know, another wonderful example of this 
is the Apostle Paul. You could, again, another cross-reference. You could write down Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 15 through 18. And again, you can turn there if you want. Well, I'll just reference it. Paul is imprisoned. He is literally chained to a Roman guard. And so he's not going out in his missionary journeys preaching and spreading the gospel anymore. All he can do is write and speak to the people who have come to visit him. And do you know what that meant? There was a big vacuum. There was a big opening for people to fill his missionary shoes. And people were going out to preach and to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And do you know what Paul realized? Listen to what he says. He says that some preach Christ even of envy and strife, but some sincerely. Do you know what he recognized? Some were going out there trying to puff themselves up and be the big shot like Paul. Do you know what others were doing? He said they were supposing to add affliction to his bonds. Not only were they trying to elevate themselves, they were trying to push Paul down whether they were going out and preaching and trying to elevate themselves beyond the great apostle Paul and kick him while he was down in prison. And do you know how Paul responds to this? He says, what they, whether, they, whether in pretense, whether out of their own pride, or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice and will rejoice. How did Paul respond when he was getting kicked on, when he was down in jail? He said, it's not about my team. It's about his team. If he's being preached, then I rejoice. Yes, preach Christ more. If it's the real Christ. If it's the real Christ that's being preached. You see, this is the answer to a party spirit in every age. What's our question? Is Christ being preached? Is Christ being preached at the church down the street that's growing in numbers? Is Christ being preached through that ministry over there? Is he authentically being preached? Is he being lifted up for who he is in the scripture? Are people being brought to salvation in Christ? Then I rejoice. It doesn't matter whether it's on my team or my side or my little group. It's whether he is being preached. In other words, the third thing that the disciples needed to learn was that they should not oppose Christ-exalting ministry from Christ-affirming people, even when they're not in their group. And the same thing is for us. Is Christ being preached? If he's not being preached, then Jesus says these words, he that is not for us is against us. He says, he that gathers not with me scatters. You say, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. You're either for him or you are against him. And when you are against him, we stand opposed. And when you are for him, we rejoice that Christ is being preached. That was one of my favorite old jokes. The man who dies and goes up to the pearly gates and Peter begins giving him a tour of the place. And as he goes, he comes down a particular wing of the hall and he says, Peter says, as we go by this wing, let's just kind of keep it quiet here. Shh. And he goes by and he says, why did we need to keep it quiet there? He said, oh, he said, that's where the Baptists are. They think they're the only ones here. 
and there's, there's a kind of spirit about that, isn't there? About that kind of party spirit that says, it's only us, it's only our group, it's only those of us who have the, the monopoly on the work of Christ here in the world. And we need to be reminded, Jesus is bigger than our groups. The gospel is bigger than our subcultures. And when we see Christ being preached, truly the true Christ, the real Christ, and the work of God being done in the salvation of souls and the opposition of the devil, may we have that openness of heart to rejoice. So there's a recollection of the disciples, there's a rebuke from Christ, and then finally, and in these last couple of verses, there's a reality for all. Notice here in verse 41, Jesus says, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Now listen to think about the connection here. The disciples have just been forbidding someone who wasn't part of their group, even though he was affirming Christ and he was exalting Christ and serving Christ. And now Jesus is going to flip it around to them, to the exact opposite extreme. He says, I want to tell you something. My side is so important, is so central, that if someone gives you just the smallest little refreshment, the smallest little blessing, the smallest act of service in my name, because you are on my side, there's a reward that he will never lose. You see how, how ridiculous it is when we break up into our little groups and pretend that we're the only ones who can be used of God? Jesus says, do you know how central my side is? My side will be rewarded for all of eternity for the smallest acts of service that are done in my name and for my cause. And notice what he goes on to say in the very next verse. And whosoever shall offend, that idea of that word is to trap, like with a bait, or trip up. Like you put a, a, a block in front of someone that trips their feet. If you offend one of these little ones that believe in me, one of these humble ones, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And we need to step back for some historical context there very briefly. How people ground grain was through a millstone. And history will tell you that they were two stones that would be rubbed together. A big, heavy, lower stone and a second, lighter stone above it that would be used to grind it. It could be two smaller stones and it would just be by hand. And you'd grind out the, the, the separate the wheat from the kernel. But there were also commercial operations that would be led by a donkey. A donkey would, would go around a circle and grind. Those two stones would grind the grain under it. And I read that that bottom stone, that bottom millstone, could be hundreds if not thousands of pounds. I want you to let that sink in. Have you heard of concrete shoes? The famous mafia method of putting someone's feet in concrete and throwing them into the river to sink to the bottom for, to be executed. Jesus is being serious here, folks. He's saying, my side is so central. My kingdom is so important 
that those who try to oppose it, those who would trip up, would entrap any one of these humble little ones who believe in me. He said it would be better to have concrete shoes, to have a thousand pound stone wrapped around your neck and you dropped into the middle of the ocean. That would be preferable. That would be a better thing than what will come on that person. Wow. That's serious. You know what Jesus is driving to ultimately here, I think? There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no, let's not take sides. Jesus says, are you on my side? If you're on my side, then every act of, you, of service that you do for my side will be rewarded. And every attempt to stand against my side and to, to hinder it will be punished severely. And that means for me, friends, the, the question is, do I believe it? I mean, really, do I believe it? What would that do for your week this week? If you really believe that every act of service you do in Jesus' name for other little ones in his name will be rewarded eternally. What, 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 how would that cause you to act this week if you really believed it? What would that cause you to do with your free time? How would, how would you structure your time differently so that if Jesus says, I've got a reward, I'm going to try to get as many of those acts of service in as I can God, where, where's a cup of cold water that I can give out? If that's all that's required, wh what other acts of service can I give to little ones in Jesus' name, to my fellow brothers and sisters, because they're believers, I'm on his side, and I'm serving them? What would that do for our week? And what would it do for our week if we knew how much Jesus treasures and prizes us humble ones who believe in him? that we wouldn't, do, we wouldn't dream of putting a stumbling block in their way, of trapping them or tripping them up by the way we act. How seriously would we take their pursuit, their faith, their health spiritually before God? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying to all of us, whose side are you on? Are you about your own little group more than anything else? Are you about your own advancement, your own elevation? Or in humility, are you going to stand on my side and get to the back of the line and commit yourself by faith in me and in my name to serve everyone that you can? Let's remember for all of us this morning, friends, the little squabbles about whose church is bigger, who's doing better, who's being recognized and rewarded, that's absolutely an enemy to the thinking of the cause of Christ, which is to say, he must increase. And I, I must decrease. Friend, whose side are you on today? And whose side will you live on and act on this week?